Hey, good morning. It's good to be here with you. Um, I feel like after that, we should just invite the worship team back up and respond um, after that great call to serve in uh, children's um, and in junior high. Um, I don't know if it's the accent, the combination of the articulation, but like, I feel called. Um, so I hope you do too. Um, if, you, uh, if you have a Bible, open up to Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to get back into the story of Nehemiah today. Um, it's a great chapter. Um, I guess we should say that about all the chapters in the Bible, but this is a really good chapter, um, a very long chapter, uh, particularly focused on prayer that we're going to dive into today. So uh, Nehemiah chapter 9 is where we're going to spend our time. Uh, if you don't mind, I would like to just take a quick second and, uh, and pray again for, um, for our time together as we, as we look at the Word. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to come to church and to gather and to be here with you. And Father, there's a lot of things we could be doing on a Sunday. There's a lot of things that are going on in our minds and in our hearts. And Lord, we ask that in this time that you would please uh, calm our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, help us to slow down and to take deep breaths and to be present with you. God, we believe that you are alive and that you are real, that you want to encounter us today, that you want to speak to us, that you want to encourage us, that you want to convict us, and that you want to be here with us. And so we pray, God, that as we spend these couple moments looking at this ancient text and these prayers from normal, ordinary people, that you would use this time to change us and help us to think and feel and believe and be changed and transformed by your word through the power of your spirit. So please come. We love you. We thank you. Uh, and it's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Uh, okay, uh, quick housekeeping item um, before we get into the text. Um, uh, when, uh, when I was in Portland, uh, my wife and I, we were, we were serving at a church there, and one of the things we really liked to do every Sunday after the sermon was to have a Q&A, and um, it was a time to be able to not just uh, do a monologue, but to actually be able to have a dialogue, and so uh, my goal is to go for about 35 minutes and then open it up for Q&A. Uh, and so maybe we'll walk around with a mic. If you're loud enough and you don't need it, um, you can just ask the question. A um, couple caveats. One, I'm super comfortable with saying I don't know. Um, and I'm even more comfortable with saying go ask Chris. Um, <laughs> So that's, that's the caveat on that, is that um, I, I love to be able to have these dialogues. I don't claim to be Bible answer man or anything like that, but I think it's important um, to be able to wrestle together, and, and, uh, and there might be questions that come out of this text, um, some things that I say or that are communicated uh, that you have for, uh, more questions about. So as we're going through, think about it. If anything comes up that you want to uh, have a little bit of a dialogue about, I would love to be able to engage um, and try to answer some questions. So with that, uh, Nehemiah 9. All right, uh, let me start by this. Um, I want to ask you a question um, to think about, and it might be a question that uh, at first blush might be strange um, to you. Um, but it, it, picture the scene if you and I were sitting across from each other having coffee, and I asked you the question, what is your story? Um, how would you respond? 
uh, to the question, what is your story? What does that conjure up? What does that make you think about when, when that question's asked? It's kind of, it's, in some ways, it's become a little bit of a popular question. People will come up and say, hey, tell me about your story. And that has whole different types of uh, connotations and ideas to it. And, and I'll give you an example from, uh, personally, from my life. Um, a handful of years ago, um, I was going through um, uh, like a crisis of faith and life and things like that. And I began to see a, a, a therapist and um, a really great Christian guy who um, had been practicing therapy for a number of years. And I think we were in our second session and we were sitting down and we we're still kind of trying to get to know each other. And he asked me to do this exercise. Uh, he said, I want you to take a couple minutes and I want you to think about your life, um, but I want you to frame it in the, in the, in the narrative of a book so what I want you to do is I want you to come up with a title, and I want you to talk to me about the chapters and sections that make up your book. And so I took a couple minutes, and I did that, and I was thinking, I was thinking about it. What would my title be? What would, like, section one, section two, section three be? Uh, what would those chapters be in between um, those sections? And what ended up coming to mind for me was actually, like, kind of startling for me. Um, I, generally speaking, am a fairly optimistic person. Um, I like to think that I view life... Um, uh, optimistically, that there's good things that are coming, that there's opportunities um, ahead, and, and kind of all of those things. Maybe it's part of my kind of Enneagram 3 nature of seeing opportunities and wins and successes and stuff like that. But what came to mind was actually, uh, was actually really startling for me. And so what I shared with them is I said, the, the name of my book that comes to mind, the name of my book is Tragedy. And the title and the subsections of it, uh, I realized were all marked by these traumatic moments in my life. Um, uh, throughout, my, throughout my life, I've, I've uh, dealt with a lot of death, um, family, friends, uh, just kind of all over the place. And so what I realized, what was happening subconsciously, is I had really marked my life by these tragic events. When my dad died when I was young, hey Shane, thanks for walking in. Um, when my dad died when, he, when I was young, um, people, uh, people in the church, there had been a couple suicides our church that were really impactful. Some of my closest friends had died in a car accident. And so that really is how I define my life. So when asking me to present my book or asking me to write, uh, tell my story, that really was my story. It was marked by tragedy. And so we were talking about this and we were digging into it. And he said a couple things, two things in particular that were incredibly profound and impactful for me. Uh, he said, number one, your story isn't over. Um, see, I had presented him like a, a, a full manuscript, a closed book uh, that had been written, and that's what I really had thought my life was about. He said, your, your story isn't over yet. And the second thing he said is the way that you interpret your story in the past isn't set in stone either. He said, your story's not set in stone, your life's not set in stone, and actually the way that you even interpret your past and your life isn't set in stone either. And uh, that was really impactful for me because it kind of unlocked this narrative, this belief that I held despite my Christian beliefs, despite what I was grown up with, all of these things that I had been living into a narrative that was primarily marked by tragedy. And so that affected the way I thought about how life was going to go, how relationships were going to go, how work was going to go, whatever the case may be. And he gave me this moment of saying that story's not over yet. And there's actually another way to interpret that story. So the way that you and I think about our lives, whether consciously or subconsciously, have a massive effect on how we view our lives, how we view our relationships, and how we view God. 
massive effect. Um, I'll give you this example before we jump into the text. I was reading this book uh, by a Jewish psychologist, or a Jewish sociologist, his name is Andrew Del Blanco, and he wrote a book called uh, The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. And I wanna read you a section of this. He starts out the book by saying this. The premise of this book is that human beings need to organize the inchoate sensations amid which we pass our days, pain, desire, pleasure, fear, into a story. When that story leads somewhere and thereby helps us navigate through life to its inevitable terminus in death, it gives us hope. And if such a sustaining narrative establishes itself over time in the minds of a substantial number of people, we call that culture. Without such symbolic structure by which hope is expressed, one would be a kind of formless monster with neither sense of direction nor power of self or self-control of chase of spasmodic impulses and vague emotions. We must imagine some end of life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days if we are to keep at bay the dim back of mind suspicion that one day may be adrift in this absurd world. So a couple things from what Andrew says here. He says that you and I, whether consciously or subconsciously, have to create a story or a framework that helps us make sense of life. How do we make sense of uh, pain? How do we make sense of fear? How do we make sense of loss? How do we make sense of opportunity? How do we make sense of these things? And it's even more important to have a framework built when times of hardship and tragedy strike. How do, I, how do I make sense of life when a sickness comes, when a job loss happens, when you name it comes in? How do we make sense of life? The second thing he says is that when enough people believe that, that it inevitably creates culture. That collectively in this room, we actually have a culture. We have a culture of belief. Some of it is outspoken, some of it is conscious, some of it is subconscious, but there's a culture of belief that takes place. And if I think about um, kind of the global story that we're in, or as a headline, what I see a lot of in terms of culture and framework tends to be around anger, tends to be around outrage, fear, division, and anxiety. That seems to be the culture that permeates, at least from like a, a global news narrative and perspective. So I want to talk about today, through this chapter, the importance of story. The importance of your story, the importance of my story, and to show uh, from this text how God helps us make sense of life, the story of God that we're actually caught up in, how that helps us make sense of life. It gives us hope, it gives us meaning, gives us purpose, especially in challenging times. So with that, give a quick bit of context, and then we'll, we'll get in to, the, uh, to Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, a little bit of context. The wall's been torn down for 140 years. Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer. He gets this burden by God to go and rebuild the wall. So he prays and fasts for several months. He does a scouting trip, looks at the area, sees what's going on, then recruits uh, people to come with him on this mission. He gets permission from the king to go do it. He gets, uh, he gets money. He gets lumber. He gets opportunity to go do it. And then they go and rebuild this wall in 52 days, something that hasn't been done in 140 years, which is absolutely remarkable. And they rebuild the wall in the midst of a ton, a ton of opposition, a ton of challenge, a ton of threats, and a ton of opposition, and yet they rebuild this wall. 
in 52 days, which is remarkable. And as we got, as Chris taught last week in chapter 8, the wall has been rebuilt. About 45,000 Israelites, Jews, have come back into the promised land. And one of the first things that they do is they open up the word of God for the first time in a really long time. And as they open up God's word, they, they do it all throughout the day. It's this long prayer and Bible study. And then they uh, celebrate the Feast of Booths. They're reenacting what happened in the Exodus. And there's weeping and celebration and there's mourning. And in fact, leaders are going around and saying, hey, stop crying. This is, a, this is an amazing time. This is a, a time to rejoice. And there was this really emotive experience for these people. And so now a couple weeks has gone by. They've been, they've been in the Word. They've been reading. They've been studying. They've come back. A couple weeks have gone by. They've collectively come back together again. And what we're going to read right here is uh, actually a very long prayer. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to stand with me as we read the Word. Uh, I want to give a caveat. I hope you wore running shoes um, or something comfortable. It's, uh, it's 38 verses, and they're not short verses. So uh, if you have to stretch beforehand, whatever you need to do, um, I want to I read the whole thing in its entirety. And I, and I kind of went back and forth. Do I read it in its entirety? Do I break it up in chunks? But what I want you to see is, is this whole prayer all the way through. And one of the things I want to ask you is that as, uh, as we're going through it, I want you to think about what the story is being told. I want you to listen to the story that's being told through this prayer and see what you hear and see what you feel as they go through it. Are we ready? Good, all four of you. Okay, here we go. Verse 1, chapter 9. Uh, on October 31st, the people assembled again, and this time they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their own sin and the sins of their ancestors. They remained standing in place for three hours. Buckle up. Um, while the book of the law of their Lord God was read aloud to them. Then for three more hours, they confessed their sins and worshiped their God. The Levites, who are those guys listed for you to read, stood on their stairway, are you with me? Stood on their stairway of the Levites and cried to the Lord their God with loud voices. Then the leaders of the Levites, those guys right there, called out to the people, stand up and praise the Lord your God, for he lives from everlasting to everlasting. And then they prayed, may your glorious name be praised. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. You preserve them all and the angels of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him from the Ur of Chaldeans and renamed him Abraham when he had proved himself faithful. You made a covenant with him to give him and his descendants the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perzites, Jebusites, and the Girgashites. And you have done what you promised, for you are always true to your word. Verse 9, you saw the misery of our ancestors in Egypt, and you heard their cries from beside the Red Sea. You displayed miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, his officials, and all his people, for you knew how arrogantly they were treating our ancestors. You have a glorious reputation that has never been forgotten. You divided the sea for your people so they could walk through on dry land and, they, and, they, and then hurled their enemies into the depths of the sea. They sank like stones beneath the mighty waters. You led our ancestors by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night so they could find their way 
Verse 13, you came down at Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and instructions that were just and decrees and commands that were good. You instructed them concerning your holy Sabbath, and you commanded them through Moses, your servant, to obey all your commands, decrees, and instructions. You gave them bread from heaven when they were hungry and water from the rock when they were thirsty. You commanded them to go and take possession of the land you had sworn to give them. Verse 16, but our ancestors were proud and stubborn, and they paid no attention to your commands. They refused to obey and did not remember the miracles you had done for them. Instead, they became stubborn and appointed a leader to take them back to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful slow to anger, and rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them, even when they made an idol shaped like a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. They committed terrible blasphemies, verse 19. But in your great mercy, you did not abandon them to die in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud still led them forward by day, and the pillar of fire showed them the way through the night. You sent your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not stop giving them manna from heaven or water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness." And they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Verse 22. Then you helped our ancestors conquer kingdoms and nations and you placed your people in every corner of the land. They took over the land of King Sion and Heshbon and the king of Og of Bashan. You made their descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and brought them into the land you had promised to their ancestors. They went in and took possession of the land. You subdued whole nations before them. Even Canaanites who inhabited the land were powerless. Your people could deal with these nations and their kings as they pleased. Our ancestors captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took over houses full of good things with cisterns already dug and vineyards and olive groves and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate until they were full and grew fat and enjoyed themselves in all your blessings. Verse 26, but despite all of this, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who warned them to return to you and they committed terrible blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who made them suffer. But in their time of trouble, they cried to you and you heard from heaven. In your great mercy, you sent liberators who rescued them from their enemies. But as soon as they were at peace, your people again committed evil in your sight. And once again, once more, you let their enemies conquer them. Yet whenever your people turned and cried to you again for help, you listened once more from heaven. In your wonderful mercy, you rescued them many times." You warned them to return to your law, but they became proud and obstinate and disobeyed your commands. They did not follow your regulations, by which people will find life if they only obey. They stubbornly turned their backs on you and refused to listen. In your love, you were patient with them for many years. You sent your spirit who warned them through the prophets, but still they wouldn't listen. So once again, you allowed the people of the land to conquer them, but in your great mercy, you did not destroy them completely or abandon them forever. What a gracious and merciful God you are. Verse 32. And now our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love, do not let the hardships we have suffered seem insignificant to you. Great trouble has come upon us and upon our lands and our, our kings and our leaders and priests and prophets and ancestors. All of your people from the days when the kings of Assyria first triumphed over us till now. Every time you punished us, you were being just. We have sinned greatly, and you gave us only what we deserved. 
Our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to the warnings and your commands and laws. Even while they had their own kingdom, they did not serve you, though you showered your goodness on them. You gave them a large fertile land, but they refused to turn from their wickedness. So now today we are slaves in the land of plenty that you gave our ancestors for their enjoyment. We are slaves here in a good land. The lush produce of this land piles up in the hands of the kings who you have set over us because of our sins. They have power over us and over our livestock. We serve them at their pleasure and we are in great misery. Verse 38, the people responded. In view of all this, we are making a solemn promise and putting it in writing. On this sealed document are the names of our leaders and priests. Well done. You can be seated. (laughs) We made it. Uh, What did you hear? Uh, What did you hear through that story? What did you hear through that prayer? One of the things that I was thinking about um, this week, uh, about this chapter and about chapter 8, because they tie so closely together, um, is is why there was so much much emotion by the people. Uh, There's weeping, there's there's crying, there's praying, there's joy, there's laughter, uh, there's fasting, there's coming, they came with sackcloth and ashes and dirt on their head. And I was just thinking through this, like, why is this so emotional for them, especially when you think about the fact that they're reading arguably the most boring books of our Bible. Like, these are the struggle when we get into the Bible in a year, is like, we got to get through these books. But they're coming with such great emotion and such great response to hearing the word for hours and hours and hours. And there was a couple things that came to mind, and, and, and I'll share this, and then we'll get into, we're not going to go through every, every single verse. I want to pull out a couple highlights for, it, uh, for us. But think about this. For years, the people have been in captivity in Babylon. They've been exiled in Babylon. And one of the things that we can't lose sight of that is that reality that they've been away from Jerusalem. They have not been a people for years and years and years. They've been in in captivity and exile in Babylon. And what was the culture of Babylon like? What would have been the experience? We don't have a a crazy amount of detail, but we we at least know a couple things. Uh, We know that they were slaves who lost their individuality. And they've uh, experienced this all throughout their history, even going back to the Exodus, which they call out. Uh, They were assimilated into a culture that was polytheistic. So they were forced, assimilated into a culture that didn't share any of the beliefs that they did, any of the values, any of the ethics that they believed. The culture also didn't believe in a God who was loving, who was kind, and who was a covenantal God like they were used to. They were used to, they got brought into a culture with, a God, God, with gods who were capricious, who they could change on a whim in terms of what they felt and how they felt about you, that we existed to serve them, to appease them, to hope hope and pray that they don't get mad at us and wipe us off the face of the earth. And so for years now, they've been separated from God. They've been separated from their covenant people. They've been separated from their story and forced, assimilated into a different story. And now they come back and they're hearing these words afresh, some for the first time, some for a very long time who have not heard these words about who God actually is about who this God of, 
uh, of Abraham actually is. And as they read it, and as they read the law, and as they read the commandments, they are overwhelmed with emotion because of who this God is. And you see it as they repeat, as they go through this prayer, they are reliving the story all the way back from Abraham. They go from Abraham to the Exodus to the prophets. And what are the two things they pull out that, that at least that I saw that are primary themes? Number one, they constantly go back to the faithfulness of God. Constantly go back to the faithfulness of God in the face of their unfaithfulness. Did you hear it throughout the whole story? Let's, let's take a look at a couple things. And I think this, as, as you contemplate where they were at, coming back into the land, the wall has been torn down. Jerusalem has been in rubble. Things are destroyed. It looks terrible. And out of seemingly nowhere, the wall is rebuilt. The people come in. Nehemiah gives Ezra, says to come up and give us the word. And they're hearing it again for the first time, or if not for a very long time. And they're hearing these words about who God is. So let's just pull out a couple things um, about this, about the story that they're living into, about the story that they're remembering for themselves and for their ancestors. Verse 9, it says this, you saw, talking about God, you saw, God, our, the misery of our ancestors in Egypt, and you heard their cries beside the Red Sea. They're recounting the story of Exodus where God sees his people enslaved by a harsh dictator in Pharaoh, and that he was aware of their suffering that he was aware that they were enslaved by this dictator, Pharaoh, and that through miracles, through the plagues, through the parting of the Red Sea, he delivered his people out of the hand of Pharaoh and into the, de- and into the wilderness. Verse 12, you led our ancestors by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night so they could find their way recounting how personal God is in the way that he provided for them. He led them. He took care of them. He provided food. He provided water. He provided direction for them. Verse 14, you instructed them concerning your holy Sabbath, and you commanded them through Moses, your servant, to obey all the commands and decrees and instructions. Here's one thing that I find really fascinating. As he's recounting the Exodus experience where Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments with the two tablets, you know, Charleston Heston, he's there, he's got the commandments and the tablets to give to the people. Um, He only points out one of the commandments, which is the Sabbath. Out of all 10, he could have said, and the, and the commandments that you got, like not to murder people. Uh, but he pulls out the Sabbath, and, and why is that? I, th- I think the reason he pulls out the Sabbath as they're praying through this is to remind the people that they're no longer slaves. That God created them in his image and his likeness, and the God that they serve in contrast to the gods and the Babylonians that, that were uh, being espoused, the God that they serve is a God that gives rest. A God that creates out of love, creates out of relationship, and a God that is not a taskmaster, but a God who sets apart a day out of the week to be holy for our rest and for our benefit. Verse 16 through 19, but our ancestors were proud and were stubborn and they paid no attention to your commands. They refused to obey, and listen to this word, did not remember. This is the idea as we're thinking about our story, as we're remembering who we are in light of who God is, how quickly we are to forget that these, even these people did not remember the miracles you had done for them. Instead, they became stubborn and appointed a leader to take them back into slavery of Egypt. But you, listen to this, but you are a God of forgiveness 
gracious and merciful, slow to become angry and rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them, even when they made an idol shaped like a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. They committed terrible blasphemies, but in your great mercy, you did not abandon them to die in the wilderness. The people forgot how quickly the people forgot about the situation that they were in, how horrible it was, it was how God saved them miraculously, and how, how fast they forgot about what God did. And in turn, turned to false gods, turned to false um, religion, turned to false ideologies, and began to worship a golden calf. And so in the midst of God's unfailing love in his protection and his provision, the Israelites forget about all of those things, completely uh, 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 move against God and what he had done for them. But who is this God that the Israelites serve? He's a God who forgives. He's a God who's gracious. He's a God who's merciful. He's a God who is slow to become angry, and he is rich in unfailing love. Again, you have to remember what they're coming back into from where they were at in Babylon, and they're repeating this story. And maybe some of them are sitting in the, in, in the open area thinking about how they, too, have forgotten about who God is, forgotten about his unfailing love. Maybe they, have, they too, have bailed on God of Israel because they've been in Babylon. They've been in exile. He's not going to return. He's not going to heal. He's not going to save us. And maybe they, too, had forgotten about the promises of God. And yet, as they're praying, as the Levites are praying, they're reminding him that even if that is you, God is gracious, God is slow to punishment, he is unfailing, has unfailing love, he is gracious and slow to anger. And you have to imagine, picture that story, and maybe that's you and I in this room today. This would have been a stark contrast to the message that they were hearing while they were in Babylon. And verse 21, I want to just point this out. Um, because this has always stuck with me for years. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Like, what a weird line to throw in there. And their feet did not swell. For 40 years they were in the wilderness, being led by God, pillar of fire, cloud, all of it. For 40 years their feet didn't swell. Like, yeah, like... And on the one hand, that's just weird to note that, but on the other hand, there is something so personal and intimate and specific about God's care for all of his people that their, that their clothes didn't wear out and their feet didn't swell. And again, in contrast to the polytheistic views from exile in Babylon, all these other narratives, all these other stories, they are recounting the fact that regardless of our unfaithfulness, God did not abandon us. He provided for us so much to the, to the point that our feet didn't swell, our ancestors' feet didn't swell for 40 years. Verse 29, you wanted them to return to your law, but they became proud and obstinate and disobeyed your commands. They did not follow your regulations by which people will find life if only they obey, and they stubbornly turned their back and refused to listen. 
the message that they keep going back to, this contrast about God's character, 70 different times they reference something about God's character, about his love or his just or his patience and kindness, that at most turns the Israelites refused to obey, became proud, became obstinate, and and, and walked away from God. And yet, God is a God. The message that we believe, the story that we believe, is God is a God who created existence to bring about life for his people. And the commands that he gives us are actually to bring about our joy, not our begrudging submission. The view that the culture has of the Bible and of Christianity so much today is that it is regressive, that it is, uh, it is a chore, it is begrudging, and yet the way that God set up this story is that actually in obedience to him, that's where life comes from. That's where joy comes from. That's where peace comes from. And as they're reading this, they're seeing this over and over again, that every turn where God has been faithful to us and we have rebelled to him, that instead of abandoning us like these other gods do, like these other religions do, he came in and he rescued. He came in and he saved. And they say it in such an incredible way in verse 30, in your love you were patient with them for many years. You sent your spirit who warned them through the prophets, but still they did not listen. So once again, you allowed the people of the land to conquer them. But in your great mercy, you did not destroy them completely or abandon them forever. What a gracious and merciful God you are. I think that's a good word for you and I today. That regardless of where you find yourself in this room, and maybe you think that your life story has been brought about largely by your grit and by your efforts and your success. Uh, Maybe you're in this room filled with an immense amount of shame because of sins that you have committed and do not believe, based on a message and narrative in your head, uh, that there is forgiveness available and that there is grace and that there is, and God is patient with you. Maybe it's gone so far that you believe you've finally tapped out the resources of God in terms of patience. Uh, Maybe you're just frustrated because life gets so busy that you don't feel like you can do all of the activities that you think you're supposed to do, and so you feel some guilt and some shame around that. Regardless of where you're at, the story of Christianity, the narrative that they're repeating through this prayer is that irrespective of that, God loves you, is patient, and has more grace and more forgiveness than you could ever imagine ever imagine. The Israelites over and over and over again have this incredible experience with God, this miraculous experience with God. I, like, I would like to think if I saw Lake Coeur d'Alene part and I could walk through it that I would never miss a Bible study again. Like, I just like, okay, I got it. I'm good. But if Scripture is true like it is, I still going to screw up and something's going to happen in life that is going to force me to be so myopic on my sin or on my shame or on this situation that it's going to become a distant memory that God did anything on Lake Coeur d'Alene. And that happens to each of us at various points in life through things that happen to us, through things that we do, through the nature and the course of life, is we live, end up living into a story where God is much more like a God of Babylon or God is much more like, the, like Pharaoh, that he is a task driver, that he is a slave master who demands these things of you. And when they are not followed perfectly, 
it is followed with shame, with guilt, and with punishment. What I love about the story of God, that contrasts to our culture, is he is a God of justice. He doesn't just let things go. See, modern people, we like hate the idea that God is a God of just, and yet we get outraged when there isn't justice. It's a, it's a whole weird deal. But the tension of Scripture holds so clear that God is a God who holds grace and patience and forgiveness and justice together. So what about us? What about you and I sitting in, um, in church in 2023 during a particularly unsettling time of life? And how does this play out for you and I? Well, when you look at God's patience and God's grace and God's love and you look at God's justice at the same time because the Israelites are quick to go, we have screwed up. Our ancestors have screwed up, we have screwed up, and we are acknowledging that before you. They say, you, every time you punished us, you did it justly. They're not blaming God for what ended up happening. They acknowledge their sin. So where do we go and look at God's patience, God's love, God's faithfulness, God's grace, God's mercy, and God's justice? There's no place better to look than the cross of Jesus Christ. As New Testament Christians, as believers, if you are wondering what your story is today, and you, like me, at various points have gotten lost in a counterfeit story, of whatever it might be, the place to be reminded of the true story is with Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. I'll, give it, uh, I'll explain it this way. Um, Sky Jathani wrote a book called With, um, which is one of my favorite books of all time. He said this, fulfilling God's desire to be with us is why Jesus went to the cross. He did not die merely to inaugurate a mission or give us a second chance at life. He did not endure the horror of the cross just to demonstrate a principle of love for others to emulate or appease divine wrath. While each of these is rooted in truth and affirmed by scripture, it is only when we grasp God's unyielding desire to be with us that we begin to see the ultimate purpose of the cross. It is more than a vehicle to rescue us from death. It transports us into the arms of life. The cross is how we acquire our treasure. It is how we find unity with God. You have to know today that one of the reasons that Jesus was willing to go to the cross is to be with you and I, and is to finally, one time for all, die for all of our sins once and for all, so that when we confess, when we enter in relationship with him, it's once and for all. And as we'll go through the Old Testament, you see time and time again that there's sacrifice over and over and over again that has to be done. And what we see in the person and work of Jesus and the story of Jesus, that once and for all, he died for us. And so if, that, if that's true for you today, the way that God views you, the story for you that and I that God views is forgiven, is loved, is patient, is grace, is accepted, is valued, is beloved, and on and on and on we could go. That's your story. That's your story. And so when the Israelites confess, and we talk about confession of sin, confession is actually one of the greatest gifts a believer has because we get to share what we have done, where we have fallen short, and then receive God's mercy and grace over and over and over again. So that there's never a scenario that we pray and confess sin where God says, mm, we're all tapped out. 
But what Jesus demonstrated on the cross is that once and for all, God's love for us, God's story about us and who we are is finalized in Jesus. And that being his love and patience for us and grace and desire to be with us. So take a quick step back, hit my 35 minute mark, take a quick breather. Um, I'll open it up for uh, any questions um, or anything to chat through if anybody's willing. Um, I know it's always the first person who's got to break the ice for everybody else. Um, but if you do, you have any questions, um, feel free and then we'll, we'll wrap up and, and, and respond with, uh, with worship. I'm good with the awkward silence, so. Yes, what's your name? Debbie. Del Blanco, yeah. Uh, The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. It's a really great book. Who else? Yes. What does obedience look like practically? Yeah, really good question. So um, I, I think from a Christian perspective, um, obedience is, uh, is largely marked by motive. Um, in, in other words, why are we, why are we obeying? Um, what makes Christianity really unique is, is ideally, uh, from my perspective, Christianity comes out of, or obedience comes out of the fact uh, that we know who God is and that what he asks of us is actually for life, is for joy. Um, is for the mission of, uh, of encouraging and helping bring about his kingdom into the world. So although it might feel painful, um, God is not a God who is, is out to just make us do things just for his sake and, and for it to be miserable for us. But the way that God has set up life within the kingdom is that obedience is actually our response to God's love for us. And so practically, um, whether that's... Um, whether, whether, whatever that is, in, in your marriage, in your family, in your work, in a calling that you feel um, from God that uh, is being asked of you, that obedience flows out of the fact that we know that God loves us irrespective of um, this feels like a chore or this is challenging. Um, and the great part is with even in a context of a, a child-parent relationship, when we don't obey, um, that there's forgiveness and encouragement to try again and to go again. So I think in terms of how we think practically about obedience, um, it's important to consider the motivation and it's important to consider why we have been asked to obey um, what we have been asked to obey and it's because God has structured life in such a way to bring about our joy and to bring about our glory and so although in the immediate it might feel like pain and challenge and boredom or whatever the case may be, um, that there's a better, that there's a bigger purpose behind it. Who else? Yes, sir. Yeah, um, so the question was on uh, individual confession and uh, national or corporate confession, um, which, which I do think, uh, I, I think both are, are super important. We actually see both in this text where the people are, um, are corporately asking forgiveness on behalf of their ancestors, on the sins of their ancestors. And I think there's a place for that as Christians where we say corporately, um, forgive us for not following you the way that you have asked us to. 
for not loving our enemies the way that you've asked us to, for not uh, serving the way that you've asked us to, whatever the case may be, where I think, um, especially in a secular world where it would go really far if we as, as, as Christians corporately said, um, we have not done what we should, um, we have not lived the way that we should in light of what we say we believe, um, rather than hiding from that or trying to dismiss it. Um, but personal confession, um, First uh, John says that, um, that God is faithful and just to forgive us as we confess our sin. And that part of uh, intimacy with, with God is the willingness to be vulnerable to share all of those things that God already knows, but to be willing to share, God, this is where I have fallen short, forgive me for my sins, and, and what, regardless of what that may be, and knowing that there is forgiveness. So I think it's, I think it's a both and. I think as, as, the, as the corporate group of Christianity, I think it would go really far if uh, we were willing to admit our own hypocrisy and where we fall short, um, but at the same time, individually, there's something really powerful. James says, confess your sins one to another, um, and there's something really powerful and, and intimate of being able to confess to each other and to be able to confess to God um, our sins, which, um, again, makes Christianity really unique because um, we care about each other in that way, and there's a vulnerability in that way to confess and to confess to God who loves us and is for us. Okay, uh, one more. I feel like I'm getting off easy. Like I should just like, pr- oh, okay. Uh, do I think the church is desperate enough to repent? Um, no. Um, I, um, at least like the American church, um, and, and it depends on what part of the country I think you live in. Um, Living in Portland, which was uh, highly, highly secular, and, um, and there were not a lot of Christians to come by, um, there was, a, uh, it felt like there was a greater acknowledgement of God's need um, to be able to reach a, a city that was so um, uh, vitriolic towards God, and so um, that was required. It felt re- more required um, in uh, a city that generally shares similar ideology or feels like it does. I think it can be easy to um, uh, be lulled into a sense of not feeling the urgency or the need to repent. Um, but, I, you know, Luther says on his first thesis that was nailed to the Wittenberg Chapel that all of Christianity is one of repentance. And that I think if we are to... Uh, be an effective witness to a world that doesn't know Jesus, uh, one of the areas that we're going to have to contend with is the fact that we've blown it in a lot of ways um, and that we need to acknowledge that. I think that is powerful for us to humble ourselves, um, to be willing to confess that to God, uh, to one another, and to a world that's looking in and wondering what's different about you guys relative to anything else and what's so compelling about you guys when it seems like you act very similarly um, to the rest of the culture. So I, I think that's a big part of renewal and revival. And what we're seeing in chapters 8 and chapter 9 is as the word of God is, is, is declared, as it is read, as it is studied, repentance is usually right thereafter because we see the stark contrast of who we are in light of who God is um, and how much we fall short. Romans 3 talks all about this, how much we fall short, and yet, again, how faithful and just God has been to save us and forgive us. So I think for us in this room, and, and I'll invite the worship team to come back up, 
um, as you think about your story, um, you and I, we do have things to confess. We have missed the mark. Uh, But the message of Christianity does not lead to self-loathing. It does not lead to shame and guilt. It leads to repentance, but it should not lead to shame and guilt. Uh, Romans 8.1 says, there's n- now for those in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. So it's not, we don't have to loathe and feel shame around our sin because we know that we have a God who loves us and is patient and forgives and is gracious and is slow to anger and is quick to bless. We, those are the truths. So, a couple things. As we respond uh, with singing, I want to encourage you that singing is a way that we remember our story. Um, we get these amazing lyrics about the character and nature of God, and it is a way for us to be caught back up to sing back to God the, the, our story of who he is, his character in light of who we are. Um, there's practices that have been in, in Christianity for thousands of years that, that tell this story, um, communion being one of them, this practice that um, for many churches weekly they take communion to remember uh, Jesus' body broken for us, Jesus' blood shed on our behalf. And so as we sing and as we respond, what I want to encourage you today is that as, you, as potentially you thought about your story today in whatever way that came in, I want to encourage you that the story of God for you and for I is that he, is lo- he loves us. He went to the greatest of lengths human, beyond humanly possible to bring us back to him by sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. And so if you don't believe that message, I want to encourage you that that's a gift that has been given, that, that as we believe into that message of what Jesus has done, that we are forgiven of our sins. And I want to encourage you, if you do believe that message, but maybe you have become myopic due to life and due to situations that you're in, that as we sing and as that we remember um, to sing back and to think over and to pray over these truths about who God is, slow to, for, slow to anger, quick to forgive, gracious, kind and merciful and that might permeate our hearts and create in us a culture of people that live out a story of broken of sinful etc but forgiven and that we extend that story out to other people that we're willing to confess and repent in the context of the relationship of a loving God who welcomes us and who encourages us and who affirms us in the love that he has for us. And so if you want to do that by coming up and praying um, on these carpets right here, if you want to do that with your community group that you're around or your family that you're around, if you want to do that just between you and God, that's fantastic. But I want to encourage us, let's respond today to the story of God and what he has done from Genesis and all the way and what he's going to do in Revelation when he makes all of this right once again. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for this amazing story that throughout history you have taken broken people, uh, people that were faithless, people that rebelled, people that sinned against you, and that you saved them. And we see it all throughout the scriptures, and yet we experience it right now today in our own lives, that we are people that have fallen away from you, that have walked away from you, that have sinned, that have rebelled, and yet at every step of the way, you have provided for us. 
And so I pray, God, I pray against the enemy and I pray against his message of condemnation and against shame. I pray that you would uh, break free that in our lives and that what we would feel and what we would experience and how we would under and, and can understand how the Israelites respond with tears, respond with joy, respond with weeping is that at every turn you've been faithful to us, regardless of how unfaithful we've been. And so, Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for um, the fact that you died on the cross for us. We thank you that you rose, conquering sin, Satan, and death on our behalf. And we thank you that right now you are with us. Your presence is here with us. And so I pray that you'd help us to feel these truths deeply and that we would respond accordingly, God. We love you. We thank you so much for who you are. And it's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen.